Well, we are almost through this book of Job. We'll finish up next week. This morning we're in chapter 42. It has been and is a great story, the book of Job. Beginning, middle, to end, this is quite a story. Most of us, I think, love good stories. Most of you like a good story. For many, that started when you were a little kid. And someone would read stories to you. Now, you still love stories. You like to read stories. You like to watch stories. You like to hear about stories from little kid till you die. Why is that? Why do we love to hear stories? Some of you love to tell stories. Why do you love to tell stories? What is it about stories that we are drawn to? Why this common human desire to hear and tell stories? Animals don't do this. I've never come home to see two of my cats on the front porch sharing a story with one another. But we do. We love a good story. Now, I think, I think the reason that as human beings we love to hear Stories we love to tell stories is because we all have a sense, and it is right, that we are a part of a story. We know this. We are part of a story with a beginning, with a middle, with an end. We are a part of the greatest story. Every single one of us is a part of the greatest story, a story that is written by God himself. We like stories in our home, and the way we evaluate a story, whether a story is good or whether a story is bad, whether a book is good, whether a book is bad, whether a movie is good, whether a movie is bad, is by its ending. That is how we judge whether or not a story, a book, or a movie is good or bad. For us, in the Myers family, it is all about the ending. So if it ends sad, we judge it bad every time. We hate stories that end sad. Some of us in our family watched a movie this last summer, and those family members that watched it with me, they know exactly what I'm talking about. Because we watched this movie, and it, it really was a, a good movie. We enjoyed the movie until the last ten minutes. In the last 10 minutes of this particular movie, it ended terribly sad. 
And so for us, we quickly forgot about anything good and in the movie. We forgot about anything that was good in the movie, and we declared it one of the worst movies we have ever seen. Because of how it ended. Because we have a belief, and our belief is that good stories should not end sad. Good stories are supposed to end happy. As far as we're concerned, if the story ends sad, it is a bad story. So we're getting to the end of a story. This book of Job. As we get to the end of this book of Job, we wonder how is his story going to end? How is his story going to end? Job is a righteous, upright, God-fearing man, we're told, who turns away from evil. He is a good man. He is a good man. He is a a J.I. Packer. He is a Jerry Bridges. He is a Jim Elliott. He is a Daniel in Babylon. He's a good man. He's a righteous man. And in his story, in one day, in one day, we were told, without warning, tragedy struck. In one day, everything Job had worked for, gone. And we were told he was the the most successful man around. And in one day, everything that he had worked for, gone. His children that he had deeply loved, gone. It looks like the sweet companionship of his wife, gone. In one day, his heart had been ripped out. And then... He was given a body to match the condition of his heart. And his body was absolutely racked with a painful, life-destroying disease. Tragedy struck Job. Friends came then and offered very unhelpful counsel. They said things like, well, Job, the Righteous prosper and the wicked suffer, so you must be wicked. They said things like, you actually deserve worse than this. They said things like, your children got what they deserved. So eventually, Job near what he thinks, remember, is the end of his life. He gives his final dying words in chapters 29 through 31. He was still faithful, but barely. His faith, you you feel like his faith is, it's there, but it's about to go under. He's like a bent reed. He's like a barely burning flame. He was nearly dead, and he was doubting 
At this point in the story, he was doubting and we were wondering if God was ever going to come and speak to Job. He's doubting, he's thinking he's just going to die and then see God. And if we're reading it for the first time, we're wondering as we watch Job just twisting like a kite in the wind, chapter after chapter after chapter, is God ever going to come? Is God ever going to speak to Job? It builds, it builds, it builds. How would his story end? How's Job's story going to end? And then God came. God came. Friends, he always does. God is an obsessive rescuer. He came to Job. He spoke to Job in chapters 38 through 41. And what did he do? He revealed himself to Job as the big, perfect author of his story. God comes to Job in those last chapters and says, look at me, Job. Get your focus on me, Job. Your life is a story, and I'm writing this story. And I don't make mistakes, and I only write good stories, Job. You can trust me. I know you don't have this all figured out. I know this doesn't fit together in your mind. I know that it doesn't seem reasonable to you at times. I know you have opinions about this. I know you have your doubts. I know it's been a struggle for you, Job. But look at me, Job. Look at me. Do you really think I'm going to drop the ball? Do you really think I'm going to blow this? I am the perfect author of every story. I'm the perfect author of the story, Job. I'm the perfect author of your story, Members, attenders of Veritas Church, God says, he's the author of your story. So he calls Job's attention. And Job was delivered by the word of God. And now in today's text, chapter 41, Job responds to God now. And our story is going to end. And it is going to end... As you may have guessed, happily ever after. But before I preach this sermon, we should pray together. Will you please bow your heads with me? Our Father in heaven, thank you for time to read your word together. We pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, God. Fill me, help me to speak well and help all of us to hear well. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's see this for ourselves, this end to this great story of Job, and then we'll wrap it up next week by looking at a New Testament text about Job. But there are three sections for us to look at this morning. And they're neatly divided up, most likely in your Bible. And you can see them each with three headings. So we got three sections. In the first section, verses 1 through 6, Job is going to speak back to God. In the second section, verses 7 through 9, God is going to speak to Job's friends. 
And then in the third and final section, verses 10 through 17, God is going to happily end the story. So Job is going to speak back to God. God is going to speak to Job's friends. And then God is going to tie up the loose ends that he wants to tie up. And he is going to happily end the story. So let's take these sections one at a time. Number one, verses one through six, Job speaks back to God. So what's he going to say? God is just in chapters 38 through 41, God has finished an overwhelming declaration of his power and his glory before Job. I mean, to take you off of your feet. An overwhelming declaration of his power and his glory. God communicates to Job, God, or Job, I'm even bigger than you ever imagined. I'm, I'm beyond your wildest dreams. I'm so much more more everything than you thought I was. So it's the, it's the bigness of God, his overwhelming power and glory. And Job's going to respond in three ways. So look at these with me in verses 1 through 6. Job's going to respond back to that overwhelming declaration of power and glory in three ways. Number one, Job affirms God's sovereignty and his goodness. Look at verse 1 and 2. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. But Job is affirming God's sovereignty and God's goodness. Now Job has affirmed God's sovereignty since the, since the very beginning of this book. Job has consistently affirmed God's sovereignty, that God is over all, that God is above all, that God rules over all, that God is in complete and total control. When tragedy first struck, Job affirmed it in chapter 1, verse 21, when he said, the Lord gave and the Lord is taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then he affirmed God's sovereignty again in chapter 2, verse 10, when he said, Shall we receive good from God and not receive evil? So God gives, God takes away. We receive good from God. We receive evil from God. Job is saying God is sovereign. He oversees all of it. Nothing happens apart from God's will. And then look down at verse 11 with me in chapter 42. Look down at verse 11. Even, right? Even Job's brothers and sisters get God's sovereignty. They, his brothers and sisters, they came to him, and what does it say? Showed him sympathy and comforted him for what? All the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. 
So even the evil, even the bad, just like Joe affirmed, that came Job's way was ultimately from God. It's not ever like things were happening to Job that God had no control over. It's not like anything was ever happening to Job that God didn't ultimately, for his good purposes, desire for Job. So Job knows, here's what he's affirming here. Job knows that there is nothing God cannot do. He knows there is nothing God cannot do. I know you can do all things, Job says, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. God's purpose will stand, Job knows. God's will is indomitable. Job affirms. He believes what we read in God's word. Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. 1 Chronicles 29.11, yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours, Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Or Daniel chapter 2, verse 20 and 21. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. And down in Daniel 4.35, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Or Romans 11.36, for from him and through him and to him are all things. What are these verses all saying? What has Job been saying all along? What is he saying here at the end? He is affirming the sovereignty of God. Job knows that there is nothing God cannot do. Think about what that meant for Job to say that. God, there is nothing you cannot do, like turn the hearts of the Chaldeans. Or turn the hearts of the Sabians. Or put out a prairie fire with a rainstorm. Or turn a windstorm away from my children's homes. Job says, I know you can do all things, God. I know that your purposes stand. And I know that nothing, nothing can stop, nothing can thwart your good purposes. So Job affirms the sovereignty and goodness of God. Number two, verse three 
we see that Job confesses that he was too quick to speak. Verse 3. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Now Job there is repeating God's question in chapter 38, verse 2, and in chapter 40, verse 8. That's the question that God asked. Now Job answers it, Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. So here in response to God's question, Job is saying, me, me, I did. I darkened counsel without knowledge. I was foolishly speculating about things I don't know. I was foolishly speculating about things I do not understand. I was too quick to speak, Job confesses. And then number three. In verses four through six, Job repents. Again, Job recalls some words from God. Verse 4. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. God said that. And then here are Job's last recorded words of the book. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Those were his last words. His last words are, I repent. Do you know what it means to repent? It means to turn. Repent literally means to change your mind. Job changes his mind. Job turns to God. Job makes a U-turn. In military terms, Job makes an about face. Job does a Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Job never turned his back on God. Job never abandoned God, but he did. He just said so, but he did question God. He did doubt God. And he was too quick to speak. And now, because of that, he is ashamed and bows before God in humble submission. I despise myself, he said, and repent in dust and ashes. He's saying, I can't believe I did that. I'm so ashamed for doubting you. I'm so ashamed for questioning you. I'm so ashamed for thinking I had a a better way. Uh, I'm so ashamed for being quick to speak. Now, here's the question to ask before we move on to the next section. Very important question. 
very important question. What got Job to this point? To where he says, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. I mean, what got Job back to the beginning, like chapters 1 and 2, where he was bowing down and worshiping God and trusting God? What has gotten him to this point again? And he tells us. Didn't he tell us in the verse right before? Look with me. He told us in verse 5. What did he say? I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, so there's the reason. Therefore, and then he says, I despise myself and I repent. I repent. Why is he repenting? What got him to that point? It was, according to Job, seeing God. It was God revealing himself to Job. The bad theology of Job's friends didn't get him there. Job's own good theology did not get him there. His circumstances alone did not get him there. His willpower did not get him there. His spiritual maturity did not get him there. God got him there. He had to see God. Job had to be faced with the reality of God. He had to, as Psalm 34, 8 says, taste and see for himself that the Lord is good. And that's what he's saying here. I knew you, but I didn't really know you. I knew you, but I didn't know you like this. Or I knew you in my head, but now I, I know you in my heart. I see the reality of who you are, and it's exactly what I need. And it changes him. It changes him. That's what repentance is. He changes. He turns back to God. He bows down in dust and ashes, and he's back to trusting God fully. He's back to worshiping God. What got him there was God revealing himself to him. He had to taste and see that the Lord is good. And that's exactly what you need. That's what you need. Person who's not a Christian, you need to see God. Christian who's struggling, you need to see God. Not just hear about God, not just talk about God, not just write about God, not just study God, not just sing songs to God. You need to see God. You need to know Him for yourself. That's what every one of you needs right now. That's what Job needed. You need to see God for who He is. Friends, when you see God for who he is, you will exalt God and despise yourself. Now, you may be thinking, I don't want to despise myself. 
And how do I say this? I don't want you to despise yourself either unless you see God at the same time. That's how this works. And that's what this is about. This is not just merely hating himself, self-deprecation. That's not what this is. This is Job seeing God for who he is and now evaluating himself in comparison to God and feeling so small. It is seeing how good and merciful God is and and realizing that he does not deserve any of this, that he has not earned any of this, that, that it that God is being gracious and merciful to him. It's, it's both and. It's at the same time. He exalts God and he despises himself. And in the Bible, this is always the reaction of people when they're faced with God. Always. Always. When people come to know and see God for who he really is, they fall down on their face before God in love and worship. Remember Isaiah in chapter 6, verse 5? He sees God, and and what does he say? So good to see you. That's not what he says. Isaiah said, woe is me. He starts shaking. starts shaking uncontrollably. Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. It's just like Job, isn't it? Woe is me. Why are you saying that, Isaiah? Why are you saying woe is me? Because I've seen God. I've seen God. Peter, Luke chapter 5, verse 8, when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me. Why why does he want Jesus to depart from him? For I am a sinful man, O Lord. So Peter's grasping it. Isaiah's grasping it. Job is grasping it. You need to grasp it. The greatness, the glory of God. To see God for who he truly is. If you see God... For who he truly is, it will flatten you. It will change you. It will transform you. Parents, this is what you're praying for your kids. You're praying that your kids would taste and see for themselves that the Lord is good. Not just hear from mom and dad how good God is. They're going to hear that. But you don't want them to just agree with mom and dad. You don't want them to just memorize the Bible verses. You don't want them to just memorize the catechism. You want them to see God. And having all the right answers... And knowing all the verses, it doesn't mean anything if you don't believe it. So this is how we pray, isn't it? Oh God, do for me, 
do for my friends, do for my children what you did for Job. His theology is not going to get him there. His friends aren't going to get him there. He needs to see you, God. And this is how God rescues his people. That's how God rescues his people. He dies for them. Jesus Christ died for the sins of his people. And then at some point in a believer's life, God comes to them by way of the Holy Spirit and says, that was for you. That was for you. And you see God. Not just a story anymore. It's not just a bedtime story. The story that mom and dad told you about, you find out you're in the story. You're in it. You're rescued. So we all need to see God. That's exactly what God does for Job. So that is where God has brought Job. Job has, number one, affirmed God's sovereignty and goodness. Number two, he has confessed that he was too quick to speak. And number three, he has turned and he has taken hold of God again. He has repented. Now, the story could end there. The story could end right there. That's a pretty good ending. Verse 6. I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. I mean, isn't that what this is all about? Isn't this where we've been headed? How is God going to use all this? And how has God purposed all this? How is this actually going to be for Job's good? And then here it is. God comes and starts talking about animals and dinosaurs and stars. We're thinking, what is God doing? And then sure enough, It's effective, and Job says, I despise myself, I repent, I love you, God, I trust you, God. He's he's good, he's satisfied, he's content. Story over. You could end right there. Story doesn't end there. I think this is fascinating. There are two more sections we got to get through. So section number two, verses seven through nine, God is going to now... Speak to Job's friends. I'm distracted right now. I just remembered, I just had this vision. My dad was a preacher. And I remember my dad, he blew his nose a lot while he was preaching. He always had cough drops and he always had to blow his nose. But he, he used this thing called a handkerchief. <laughs> you guys heard of these things? And I remember watching him as a kid, and the most of he'd blow his nose, then he'd take a quick look. It's just weird. And I do that too, and I don't know why. I don't know what I'm looking for. And then he folded it up, and he, check this out, he put it back in his pocket. That's gross. 30 minutes later, he'd have to blow his nose. Do you know what he would do? He would take out the same thing and blow his nose in it again. Like turn it over and use the other side. That's disgusting. I'm thinking, I'm picturing that now. This is not helpful. 
Okay, verses 7 through 9. Here's the second section. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now, therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuite and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. Two things, just two things to see in this section. Number one, Job's friends are humbled. How are they humbled? Look at verses 7 through 9. Well, first of all, God tells them they are wrong. It says that his anger, God's anger burns against them. His anger never burned against Job. His anger burned against these three friends because of folly, God calls it in verse 8, because God says, you were not speaking of me what is right as Job had. Now, you might ask a question right there. I think, well, wait a minute. Why is he saying, you, I'm angry with you because you did not speak of me what is right? Like Job, Job spoke of me what is right. But didn't God just rebuke Job and didn't Job just repent? So what is, what is God talking about? How did these friends say wrong things about God while Job said right things about God? And I think it's this. There was a debate, wasn't there, between the friends and Job? The friends had a very simple black and white formulaic theology. The righteous prosper. The wicked suffer. And that's how it works all the time. And then they provided application for Job. And Job, through the entire book, said, no, that is not right. That is not right. It does not always work that way. That is not what's happening in this case. And God here is saying, Job was right. Job was right. So he humbles these friends and says, you guys are wrong. There's another way God humbles these men. He requires these three men to seek forgiveness through Job, the one they had abused. Think about this. The one that they had accused of being far from God. Now, for them to get close to God, they've got to go through Job. That's a humiliating experience for these men. So the whole book, right? You're far from God, Job. You're far, Job, you're far from God. You're wrong. You need to repent. You're wicked. And then God comes and says, no, actually, Job was right. And now to get to me, you've got to go through Job. And God just lays it all out. Here's how it's going to work. You're going to bring your sacrifices. Okay, you're going to pay a little price here. You're going to ask Job for forgiveness. And then Job's going to pray to me and say, hey, will you forgive them? And then I'll forgive you. He just, he just lays it all out for them. This is what they're going to need to do. They, they, can't, they don't just get to sneak off 
to their room and say sorry to God. Isn't that what you would like? When you get caught, when you're in trouble, can't this, can't this just, can't we just keep a lid on this? And sometimes you can't. Right? You drag what was in the dark out into the light. If you don't, God will. I just want to sneak off into my prayer closet. <laughs> I don't really have a closet for prayer. I just want to go to a place and it's just, it's just me and God and, and I, want to, I want to talk to God and I want to ask God to forgive me and let's just take care of it there. The problem is if you've sinned against people, You've sinned against God, and you need to seek God's forgiveness, but you also need to seek their forgiveness. You also need to turn toward those whom you have sinned against. And you see, that's what God is doing as he is humbling these men. You need to go to Job. You need to ask the one that you have accused of being far from God for forgiveness. So, Job's friends are humbled in verses 7 through 9. But also, but also, Job's repentance, I think, is proven. We see here in verses 7 through 9 that Job really is repentant. I mean, he said it, but anyone can say it. And now we see some significant actions from Job in these verses that are, as Matthew 3, 8 said, are bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. Job is proving by his action that he really is repentant. Because what is God asking him to do now? God is asking Job to bless those who have cursed him. Job is, is asking, God is asking Job to return evil with good. Is Job really repentant? Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 6, 14, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. So God forgives, but Job must also forgive. Now remember, at this point, the suffering has not been lifted. So God is asking Job to forgive these men that have said horrible, horrible things to him and about him. They really have. Job is still suffering. He still doesn't have anything. His kids are still gone. His body is still racked with this disease. And these friends are brought to him. And Job's going to need to forgive them. Friends, listen, trials that God is going to bring your way, trials that are going to involve you and other people, trials apart from forgiveness will lead to bitterness. It'll ruin you. 
They need to repent. And Job needs to forgive. As Christians, we have to deal biblically with this when we're sinned against. And of course, the basis for us extending forgiveness to others, for us letting go of what others have done to us, the basis for that is the forgiveness that we have received through Jesus. And I think about the ways that I have offended God. I think about the ways that I continue to offend God. And I think of how great His mercy is and how great His forgiveness is and how can I now withhold forgiveness from someone else. We're not to keep a record. We're to keep short accounts. And some of you really struggle with this. You've got like thumb drives full of records and wrongs that have been committed against you. And you're miserable because of it. You got them in your pocket. You get close to the person and they start buzzing. And they say something, they do something, regardless of how they meant it, you download it right onto that thumb drive. It just adds and adds and adds. If you've been forgiven, you must forgive. John Piper said, If the forgiveness of God that a repentant sinner claims to have received does not flow through him to others, the claim is a delusion. I think he's exactly right. If you claim to have received forgiveness from Jesus, and yet you don't extend that forgiveness to others, your claim to have received forgiveness from Jesus is a delusion. Because it changes you. And then finally, our third section. Verses 10 through 17. Let me read the first uh, from verse 10 through 15. Last section of the book. It's going to end here. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He had also seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first daughter Jemima, and the name of the second Keziah, and the name of the third Karen Hapuk. And in all the land there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. Let's pause. Most of your Bibles will have a, a heading at the top of that section. It's not a part of the original text, but just to kind of help you find your way around. And most of you will have a heading that says something like, The Lord Restores Job's Fortunes. And that's true. 
But there's so much more here. There's so much more than Job having his fortunes restored. I mean, God does that. In fact, according to verse 10 and verse 12, he actually doubles it. He's twice as successful as he was before. Twice as many sheep and camel and oxen and donkeys than he had before. But he was also, he was also given what? Seven sons and three daughters. Do you remember how many children Job had lost? Ten. How many children does God now give to Job? Ten. Do you remember of those ten, how many were boys and how many were girls? Well, there were seven boys and there were three girls. And this time, do you know how many are boys and how many are girls? What does it say? It's the same. Seven boys and three girls. What a coincidence. <laughs> what are the odds? Not good. God's providence. Job knows it, he's affirmed. God, you are Lord over everything. You're, of course, Lord over my wife's womb. He knows, as Psalm 127 says, that every child is a, is a reward from God above. He knows that God knit each one of these children together. It was God who determined that he would have seven boys and he would have three girls. What a blessing. What a blessing. His house had grown quiet. And now it's loud again. Kids running around, not controlling themselves. Breaking things. And he was probably thankful for every moment. Now we need to be careful. That doesn't mean that Job was never sad again. These children are not a replacement. If this was a movie, I would picture the scene of ten children laughing and running. But in the background, there are ten tombstones. So it's a sad joy. But it's joy. Don Carson said, no matter how happy the ending, nothing can remove the suffering itself. The losses Job faced would always be with him. A happy ending is better than a miserable one, but it does not transform the suffering he endured into something less than suffering. 
a survivor of the Holocaust has not suffered less because he ultimately settles into a comfortable life in Los Angeles. So no one would say to Job, and you should never say to someone, get over it. Aren't you over that yet? Job never got over losing his children. Job never moved on from losing his children. But in God's mercy, he was given more children to love. Now finally, here's the ending of the story. Two more verses. Verse 16 and 17. Here's the end of the story. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. Now here is another way you could translate verses 16 and 17. And after this, Job lived happily ever after. I mean, that's the end. That is how this story ends. I mean, these, the forgiveness and, and, and these blessings are poured out on him. And, and he lives happily ever after. Did you know that a lot of people do not like this ending in Job? There are many commentators who do not like this ending. Some commentators go so far as to say that this was added later, verses 7 through 17. That the original story ended where we said it could have ended, but it didn't. They say, I I think it did. It, It ended at verse 6, and then someone came along and added all of this Later, it should have ended with verse 6. That's the punch. That's what you want people to leave the the reader with. That's what you want the reader to leave with. Yeah, repent. That's the final message. Don't question God. Don't doubt God. Get down on your face before Him. And repent and turn from your sinful ways. And God could have ended the story that way, and that would have been a perfectly fine ending. And some have said, this is, this is not realistic. This is not realistic. This, this is sappy. It's probably those same people who make those awful movies that my family hates. that want to end with verse 6. I mean, this, this kind of ending, it makes it sound like if you keep trusting God, everything will end happily. Well, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. If you keep trusting God, 
this will all end happily ever after. That's the story. If it doesn't end happily in this life, it will in the next. It does. Friends, there are no sad endings. There is no such thing in God's story. Let me close by quoting from a secondary source. Joni Erickson Tata quoted from her before. And then I'll close with a the primary source, the Bible. But ask yourself if this is true. Is this how the story ends? Does God really end the story happily ever after? If you're a Christian, will the story end happily ever after? There's a reason you like those stories. You were built to like those stories. They are consistent with the story that God is writing, where he kills the dragon and gets the girl. That's God's story. So here's what Joni Erickson Tata said. And she suffered immensely. God's pruning shears seem merciless. Nothing escapes the cutting edge of his will. Not the blossom of youth, not the bloom of good health, not the fruit of prosperity, not the sturdy growing family. None of these fall outside the pruning effects of God's purposes. But spring comes, doesn't it? Much to our amazement, it even came to Job. A spring of such fragrance and beauty that his long, bitter winter must have seemed like a bad dream. Hope returns. New life pokes up from the dead stump. Joy reappears ever so slowly, almost shyly and not all at once, but it comes. Fresh new grace enables us to endure. Bright, hopeful promises offer a strong trellis to which we can cling. The sweet fragrance of the Holy Spirit blows across our lives, waters us with his word, and encourages us to reach for all the good things God has in store for us. In God's order, winter always gives way to spring. The iron grip of January yields to the sunshine of his love. If not now, then soon. Spring will not tarry. New life is on the way. And now our primary source, the Bible. Does God's story end like Job's story? Christian, will your story end like Job's story? Well, let's do this. Let's go together to the end of God's story. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Revelation chapter 22. Is the last chapter in your Bible.
Let's read how the story ends. And I'll read verses 1 through 5. Revelation 22, 1 through 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. The story ends happily ever after. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I know that there are people here who are weak and who are weary and are exhausted and worn down. Lord, I ask that this truth of your word would be an encouragement to them and a light to them, that they would know that spring is coming. They would know that all things will be made right. They need only to trust you. Help us, God, to trust you. Help us to look to you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.